Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As we uh, get into this topic today of suffering, it's going to be a, it's a difficult theme to talk about. It's deeply personal. Uh, the Bible doesn't always give us the answers that we might like. Uh, and sometimes it gives us answers that, or it doesn't always give us, the, give us an answer at all, and sometimes not the answer we like. Uh, but let's pray uh, that God might give us ears to hear. Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we reflect on your word now, help me to speak faithfully from it and help each of us to come humbly, uh, seeking to understand you better and loving you more. Amen. Questions about evil and suffering and the goodness of God have been around for a long time. Uh, one philosopher uh, posed the question like this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And as much as that is a philosophical question, it's also a very real question because suffering is such a huge part of our life experience. We see the terrible suffering of natural disasters and freak accidents like what we're seeing right now in Turkey and Syria. Uh, events where there's no one else to blame except God. Uh, and we see it in the suffering that we cause one another. Now, these are the words of one survivor from the Auschwitz death camps during World War II. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I trans saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. They're hard words to hear. But perhaps the most confronting suffering of all is when it happens to us and to those we love. When we're up close and personal and we're confronted with a diagnosis of cancer or when our child is crippled with depression, or where we're mercilessly bullied at work, or where a normal you know, work day starts with us driving to work and ends in a car accident and in hospital. 
Uh, that's when suffering feels most real. And if God is good and sovereign, then how could he allow these things to happen? How does this fit with a loving God? Uh, even when people are doing terrible things to other people, you know, why doesn't God intervene and stop it? And so for many, uh, it's inconceivable that any good God would allow this to happen and therefore there is no God. So that's the question and the dilemma that we're exploring today. So let me begin by saying that the existence of God isn't dependent on God being good, but the Bible does affirm the goodness of God. So, for example, in 1 John, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So if God created everything, then goodness is defined by God and God is good. And God remains actively sovereign over all things. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. And if God is sovereign, then he is also sovereign over evil. In the Old Testament book of Job, there's a story about Satan coming before God. And the point of the story is that he can only act within God's ordained will. And so when Job suffers, he doesn't attribute his suffering to Satan, even though Satan's the agent. He attributes his suffering to God. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And for many Christians, that is a huge problem. The idea of God standing behind suffering and evil is so abhorrent and so shocking that they feel that there must be a better, more comfortable explanation. Uh, some try to solve the problem of evil by saying that God has, sovereign, has you know, sovereignly chosen to limit his power. And out of love and respect for humanity, he gives us absolute free will, including the freedom to sin and therefore also the freedom to do evil. And so God isn't responsible for the evil of humanity. Uh, it might make our image of God more palatable, but it leaves us with a God who can sympathise and miraculously react, but he has no control. Uh, the Bible always affirms the personal responsibility for us of our actions. And it always affirms that God is sovereign and in control. And how those two ideas sit together is a paradox. We just simply do not have an answer. You know, I hope one day we'll stand in heaven and it'll all become clear, although I suspect in that moment we won't really care quite so much. The Bible's picture might not be convenient, but there is comfort in knowing that the God who allows evil is the same God that has power over evil and is the one who will act to destroy evil. And so the Bible tells us that God is sovereign. He has chosen to bring evil and suffering and brokenness into our experience. Uh, not because he's malevolent, uh, like Epicurus suggests, but because God has a purpose for our suffering. 
Uh, if you know a little bit of the Bible, uh, you might think the Garden of Eden was God's purpose for humanity. A humanity living in harmony with God, with one another and with creation. And it was all going well until God left the door open, a snake got in and everything gets messed up. And now he's taking humanity through this big sort of hoopla mess of sin and suffering to get back to where he wanted to be in the first place. The problem with that thinking is the biblical picture of reality is not circular. It's not God trying to get back to the start. It's a straight line. It's, It's taking humanity from a place that was good to a place that will be perfect. So God's plan for humanity is less about sort of repairing the car after the car crash and more the metamorphosis of a caterpillar. You know, the whole crystallist you know, part of the process looks like a step backward in the moment, but it's necessary for that caterpillar to go through that process to become everything that God has created it to be. Uh, funny enough, these pictures were taken by Pete on Monday. We're talking about it and he goes, well, it just so happens. I have one in my backyard, which was very convenient. But that's why the Apostle Paul can say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So a humanist view of life is oriented around the present and my personal well-being. And so if there is a God or a force, then he, she or it should be committed uh, to my comfort and happiness. And I think Christians are tempted into the same sort of assumption Now, we read the verse, you know, God works for the good of those who love him uh, from Romans 8. And we hear good to mean our comfort and health and happiness and preferably some wealth as well. And so when we suffer, we conclude that we must have done something wrong and now we are being punished. So the sceptic locates suffering as proof that God is absent For Christians, we often locate suffering in the judgment of God. But as we read the Bible, we discover that God's purpose for humanity is oriented around our relationship with him. And so it's oriented around our salvation and restoration and our hope for heaven. And God is so committed to our salvation and restoration that he's even willing to allow his own son to suffer. Uh, that he would choose for him to suffer on the cross, to pay the price for our sin, so that we might have eternal life. So it's hard to understand why God would choose this path of sin and suffering and restoration for his creation. But it's not frivolous or arbitrary or malevolent. Uh, So let me suggest uh, four reasons uh, why God has chosen to include suffering in our experience. This is four principles that come out of the Bible for us. And the first is, suffering is a glimpse of life without God. Now, the big message of the Enlightenment in Europe was that God is dead and all hope for humanity is resting on our inherent goodness, science and education. Uh, H.G. Wells is most famous for his book, uh, War of the Worlds. Uh, It was written in 1898. But this is what he had to say in another book. Can we doubt 
that presently our race will more than realise our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. It's quite an endorsement for humanity, isn't it? That was in 1937. Uh, This is what he writes seven years later. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenceless, the return of deliberate and organised torture, mental torture, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished, has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he's pleased to call himself, is played out. And so what changed his view between those two quotes? The answer is World War II. Our world wants to put our hope in humanity, uh, but all the evidence suggests that even if we do know the right thing to do, we don't have the capacity to do it. And so suffering helps us understand and appreciate the glory of God, but also just how much we need God. Uh, Secondly, suffering teaches us to be prepared. So let me give one example from a conversation with Jesus. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than any of the others who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Every day the news is full of stories like that. And our natural reaction is to focus on the question why. Why is this happening? And perhaps even more particular, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this that's so much worse than everyone else? But Jesus uses these two examples. One's the result of evil behaviour, the other the result of a freak accident, to say suffering isn't just about the judgment of sin. But a time will come when God will judge and we never know when that time will come. And so we need to live in the present, but we also need to live prepared for the future. And being prepared means recognising that our relationship with God is broken. Uh, that our relationship with God is marred by sin and we need to repent and we need to recognise and submit to the Lordship of Christ. And it's a bit like a footy team. If you're unwilling to commit to the team, then you don't get to run onto the field on game day. And sooner or later, we will all face game day uh, where we will stand before God and we'll be held accountable for our choices. And at the heart of that choice will be our willingness to submit to our creator. So number three, suffering builds character. 
from Romans, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. In a culture that idolises youth and fun and happiness, it's difficult to sell perseverance and character as something to aspire to. But those are the things that God uses to help us grow as people. Uh, If you've ever seen a pruned rose bush, it's not pretty. You basically take this perfectly healthy plant... Right, and then hack at it until all you're left is like a couple of sadly little sticks. Uh, but that is what rose bushes need to genuinely thrive. And it's a bit the same with us, that God uses suffering to help us grow. And so at the risk of sounding simplistic or perhaps even trite, we can either allow our suffering to define us or we can use our suffering to refine us. Because suffering has a unique way of refocusing our perspective on life, on what's truly valuable. Uh, It teaches us to be prepared to meet uh, meet our maker. It teaches us humility and compassion. And it teaches us to rely less on our own strength and to recognise the strength and the comfort of God. Christians will suffer just as much as everyone else. But the difference between us and the next person is that we don't suffer alone. In the words of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And for Christians, that desire to walk with God in our suffering testifies to the genuineness of of our faith. If you want to see the genuineness of, a, of the love of a husband for a wife or a wife for a husband, then don't look at the wedding photos. Okay, of course you know what they're going to look like. If you want to see what real love looks like, then look at how they love one another when things go wrong. When a wife loves her husband as he struggles with his depression, or how a husband loves his wife as they both grieve the death of a child. And it's the same with God. The sincerity of our faith is seen most clearly in how we trust God in the darkest times. It's not ignoring our grief, but even in our grief, we are thankful for God's assurance and we want to honour God in it. And I hope as people look at Christians, they see something different and compelling in the way that we respond to suffering. And it brings them to the point of going, I'm not totally sure what they've got, but I need that. And they come to a point of recognising that that is the God who created us, the God who loves us, the God who saved us through his son. And that might well be you today. And I hope as you look around at Christians that you do see something different. Uh, finally, uh, suffering relocates our hope. You know, so often we cling to this life as if it's all we've got. And we feel ripped off if it doesn't live up to our expectations. And we've got a, a certain idea about roughly how long it should go for. 
And the answer is usually more. Uh, But the Bible always points us forward uh, to beyond the present, that a time will come where God will fulfil all of his plans for his creation, where evil will be destroyed, where sin will be judged. And if we are in Christ, then we'll experience the complete fullness of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so the book of Revelation paints this wonderful picture of a world without suffering. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's all oriented around our relationship with God. And it's not wishful thinking or desperation, although we are desperate, but it's grounded in the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he rose again, and so he leads the way and he prepares a place for us. That's where our confidence comes in our hope. So the confident hope for the Christian isn't in the present. It's not that God will spare us from suffering. It's that God will walk with us in our suffering and that he will bring us safely home. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.